Welcome to the Food, Family and Friends podcast, proudly presented by worldpodcasts.com. Now it's time to join your host, Vanessa Baxter. Hello, and this week we have a very exciting interview. This is with a guy, Kiara Ashanti, all the way from Florida in the United States, and he has written a book called America's First Feast. And it is all about one man's goal to grow, hunt and cook the original Thanksgiving feast. He has a great sense of humour. His story is fantastic. I read his book in one sitting and absolutely loved it from front page to back page. It's available on Amazon. You can go in and download it straight to one of your devices to read. Well worth a read, whether you're American, into Thanksgiving or not. This is a story for everyone. And I am just blown away by his intensity of his goal to try to grow everything, hunt for everything himself and then to cook everything himself. And it was very, very exciting to put together this interview and I'm really excited to share it with you. So here we are with Kiara Ashanti. So yeah, happy Thanksgiving. You've just had Thanksgiving. Yes, just had it a few days ago. Um, a lot of food, obviously. Uh, we ended up having like eight people this time uh, at the person's house. But this year was quite a bit less uh, work than last year. <laughs> so I'm assuming the book that you've released is all about last year's crazy uh, Thanksgiving journey. Correct, correct. So um, I actually had the pleasure of reading your book. I was so fascinated that I told everyone to go away, got my cup of tea and just read it from from one cover to the next. It was amazing, Kiara. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad to hear that. I was hoping I'd be able to bring people into it and kind of give them an idea of what I was going through or thinking about as I tried to do everything. (laughs) I know. You're such an amazing person. So tell us a little bit about yourself and what on earth possessed you to decide to grow, hunt and cook an original Thanksgiving feast. Well, uh, I've been into hunting and gardening just in the last couple of years. Uh, been, I've been a writer for like the last 17. Uh, professionally, I've been a freelance writer as well as in the financial field. But on my free time, I'm always coming up with different projects and ideas. So when this one came to my mind, my friends did look at me a little bit crazy as I relate in the book, but they weren't overly surprised that I was having another harebrained scheme. <laughs> <laughs> I did gather that, and I think that's what uh, kept me so interested in reading your book as well. It was really um, very entertaining, to be honest. I mean, you've obviously got a great sense of humor, a great group of friends, but those friends were not so excited about conforming to a historical Thanksgiving when it came down to the reality of it. Do you think they actually believed you were going to go through with the whole thing? No, I don't think that in the beginning that they thought that, number one, I could bring it all together. And I think when they first agreed, they were kind of like, you know how you say yes to somebody just to kind of shut them up and send them on their way? Exactly. Uh, I, I think that's what they did at first. And as I sent them the menu and gave them, you know, the list of what was actually going to be cooked and grown, they that's when they started to question like okay he's for real and we don't see anything on this list that we're used to other than a turkey (laughs) exactly exactly so tell me what did actually what was it that made you go 
I am going to do this. Like, I know that you wondered one day what it was that the uh, pilgrims originally ate and you thought, you know, I wonder what they did really eat and then it became sort of like a question that you were determined to answer for yourself. But in all of well, that, why did you decide to recreate it? What was it that... Well, you know, when the, I th- when the question came to my mind first, it was just a, I wonder what they, they ate. I think what spurred me to go the next step was um, I had been reading about uh, hunting and I've read a number of Steve Ranella's books and he has this one book where he took an old French book with recipes from like the 13 or 1400s and he decided to go out and try and cook all of the things that were in that recipe book and of course back in those times they eat all kinds of crazy things but I think in the back of my mind that's what spurred, hey, I wonder if I could go out and do the same thing, but for Thanksgiving. And since I was already gardening, to me, it was just natural to say, okay, I can grow these things. and I'm already in the hunting, so I can go out and hunt these things too. <laughs> I know, but, but the, the fact that you were into hunting, I mean, you were into hunting, but had you actually thought through the fact that you were going to have to somehow go and fish for your own fish and literally hunt your own birds? Uh, no, I thought it was going to be a lot easier than, I, than it ended up being, particularly on the fishing part. The bird part, once I knew, yes, turkey was definitely there, I knew it was going to be an issue because here in America, going out turkey hunting can be expensive unless you have your own land. Uh, and since I had only been hunting a couple of years, I did not feel comfortable going out into the woods by myself because I was sure I would get lost and I would never be seen again. <laughs> so, uh, you know, but even as I started to go out and do the fishing and try to do everything else, it just turned out to be more of a more work than I really expected. To. I expected I would go out a couple of days and I just get this and I would get that and it would be it would be over. And, and out of interest, it, was it about the cooking? I mean, are, do you love cooking? I do love cooking. Um, even though I'm not a, quote, trained chef or anything like that, I do love making food and, and experimenting with different recipes and changing out ingredients and things like that. So the, the, the cooking part of it, that part was also exciting for me because I knew that I was going to have to cook it, whatever I cooked, pretty well because many people who don't eat foods that have been either hunted or game meats have this idea that they can be gamey or they just taste a little odd to them. Yeah. So who taught you to cook, Kiara? Who ultimately, uh, you know, my way mom back? Yeah, my mom taught me to cook by just allowing me to do it when I was starting when I was like seven years old, cooking eggs. Um, and then when I left for college, cooking became more of a necessity and, and again, an experimentation. So if I didn't know how to cook something, I wouldn't think twice about asking either her or just looking it up in a cookbook now it's easy because you just go you just go google and you can find a bazillion recipes it's interesting isn't it did you have an extended family when you were young like did you grow up with your grandparents around as well influencing cooking yes i grew up with my grandparents uh i had one set of grandparents that did all the the things you would think that grandmothers do you know the cooking of cakes and turkeys and chicken and all the big dinners and then i had another uh, grandmother, she didn't really do all that cooking. She just cooked baked goods. She did have her own garden, although as a kid, I didn't go out into the garden with her. Um, but she would make her own jellies. 
Um, and so, like, for instance, my sweet potato pie recipes I pulled from my aunt, who makes the best until I changed it and made it better. Um, <laughs> Does she agree with that or do you fight over well, that? She no, I told her on Facebook <laughs> and she basically said, well, I'm going to have to try it out first. <laughs> And when you say you had, was it your aunt just then that you said, or was it a grandmother that made jellies? Do you My mean, so that, that's like a jam, yeah? Like a yes. spread. So we would call that a jam. Yeah. yeah. And I, when I would go, I didn't go home often during college, but whenever I did, I would beg her to make me a couple of jars so I could bring them back. <laughs> Fantastic. And what did you, did you actually study creative writing? Is that what you studied at university? No, I, I studied communications, but communications more from human to human interaction, not broadcast journalism. But writing was always something that I had a, a somewhat of a talent for it, and I had an imagination. So it was something my mom used to push me to do. And in college, I would take courses that, pers- you know, you needed to write a lot of papers for because I figured I, mean, I can get easy A's if I would write. Uh, but I would always get these ideas for different articles and, and magazine articles in my mind. And then finally, in like 1999, I started trying to actually write them and submit them to publications. And I kind of think that's where my formal writing began. And di- was that easy or did you get lots of rejections of writing? You know, it, it, I hate to say it, but it was easy. Oh, it was easy. So you did okay. It was easy, <laughs> and it's not supposed to be. At the time, it's interesting. I was dating uh, a young lady who was uh, a writer as well, and she went through the traditional, you know, she studied English, she wrote for newspapers, she would submit articles, and she would get all these rejections. And I would tend to just contact the editors directly and kind of, I had a sales background, so I would use that skill to get them interested, and then I would put my, whatever I wrote through five or six different edits before I would send it to them. But I think that that is actually, you've just touched on life in general, isn't it? It's often about personality and creating, uh, you know, a really fantastic um, oh, what's my, I'm trying to, I've lost my words here, but you know, you're communicating with people, you're being real and you're being you and you're developing a relationship and then they're going to trust you when you send them something rather than going through the whole formal process as it, as it was, you know, when I was younger as well, Kiara and I went to uni, you know, we were told you write this letter and you wait for something to be received and then you write again. Uh, and it was a very formalized procedure, but I don't think that's really how life works in general, is it? No, it's not. I mean, it, you, I, I did end up having to do those things at some point because a lot of, you know, publications had their own formal way of doing it. But in the beginning, you know, I started writing like in, say, January of 99. And by March, I had a cover story in a national magazine. And it was specifically because the editor was uh, in a city a couple hours away from where I live. So I just drove down to where the writ was to meet him. Yeah, exactly. And introduce myself. And so from there, I started doing, you know, small things and they just got bigger and bigger. And is this your first book, this America's First Feast that you've written? Is that actually your first published book? Yes, that's the first book that I consider published. I, I have written a book that I ghost wrote for somebody else, so it's not really my name. I more like interviewed him and then put it into a book form, uh, and that was put out by somebody else. And I wrote a, a book many years ago on uh, creating a website that 
helps you sell your products. But again, that was relatively small, something that I, I, I did from uh, recordings. This was the first where I sat down, okay, I'm going to write this and I'm going to write it quickly. And I wrote this in about a week. Yeah, well, it, it reads so well. It reads as if you've just sat down and written it about the whole journey of your growing and your feast with your little, like, sort of blasts to the past of how you actually even joined a community garden and what, what possessed you to go and buy a plot in the middle of the city and start growing. Can you share that with our listeners? Because I loved that. Yeah, well, you know, I started reading this book, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners have probably read, Omnivore's Dilemma. Oh, Michael and- Pollan. Yes, and was horrified at the information inside. So after reading that, I decided I was going to start looking for more natural foods at farmer's markets. And I do relate one story as I started going to the farmer's markets, you know, locally, I felt like a complete fish out of water because the people who are there are just not the type of people I tend to hang out with. They're very artsy, very crafty, very zen. And I'm like, you know, real conservative and uptight almost. (laughs) So, uh, you know, wandering around, I really did look lost, but I wanted better foods. And I had a part of my mind that was still skeptical as, as to how much better tasting the foods would be. But, of course, they are better tasting. And so I decided, wow, I wonder if they have a garden someplace that I can start doing it on my own. And since I'm the king of Google research among my friends, I found out, that's how I found out about the community gardens and you start searching for ones in, in my uh, city. And, and where do you actually live? Can you share with us? Where yeah. You, yeah. yeah, I live in Orlando, Florida. Um, <laughs> so I'm, you know, sun all the time. <laughs> sun all the time, hot, I would imagine. And what, do you have a balcony? Is that what you've kind of got where you are? Or do you have any type no, of... I don't. I don't have a balcony. Um, I just went looking specifically for the community gardens, and which took me forever to find them. There's about 22 of them in Orlando, but they're hidden. I mean, like, they're tucked away in areas where you wouldn't necessarily uh, Go. look for And, you know, at, the to- at that time, they all didn't have very good websites or information relating um, because, you know, some people would join and then they would drop, drop off. But I eventually found one, oddly enough, right down, like literally a block away from the farmer's market that I had been going to for like the last three months. And how and did you learn how to how to do it? Like I could go and get a little plot in a community garden, but I would be completely lost as to where to go from there. Well, that's where becoming a voracious reader comes in handy. I get so many ideas and projects mainly because I read like some people buy shoes. <laughs> it's, it's, it's ridiculous how many books I read on, a, on an annual basis. So when I started doing it, I just started reading about gardening in general, going on the websites, reading books, um, asking people once I joined the, the, the garden, asking the members who had been there for a while what to do because I like to suck in information and if I don't know something I'm not one of those people that has an ego where I just try to muddle my way through it I'll ask somebody and were they 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 passionate gardeners 
Yes, they were. Uh, um, the the I joined two. One was a small garden, which only had six plots. But then the second one I joined was the primary one in Orlando. We've got thirty different plots of that one, and they're all four by twelve. And the one, people at that one are very passionate. Have been a part of the garden for four or five years, which is how old it had been at that time. And I would just bug a few of them with information. And then I started experimenting with things of my own and I've become known as the, the great experimenter at the garden because I, I'll try anything. <laughs> Even things that don't work under the Florida climate. A, a, exactly. I'm a little bit hard headed with that. Um, <laughs> and, you know, by that time I had come up with this idea that the members were used to me coming up with some harebrained, again, idea about how to compost or how to tie something. So when I decided to start trying to grow the corn, they they gave me their advice, and then they smiled as I tried anyway because I figured, <laughs> oh, I can do it. I just, you know, I'll just make these different parameters. Um, and the heat just made it near impossible to do. Did you grow corn for Thanksgiving, though? I did grow it, but as I relate in the book, I didn't grow enough of it where I could use it to actually cook with, okay? Because I had about six stalks, um, and the bugs got to them, and the heat got to them, and so they wouldn't... I had actual ears of corn, but you know how the the corn itself needs to puff out to be edible? Sure. They wouldn't eat Um, And uh, that was because they weren't getting enough fertilizer. Uh, Not fertilizer, excuse me. They weren't getting enough pollinization between them because I really didn't have enough planted. I probably needed to plant a four by four section of the of the garden plot with nothing but corn. And if I had done that, I probably would have had a little bit better success with that. Classic. I think it's amazing that you even tried. Now, when I was reading your book, I was reading a lot about collard greens. And because I'm not from the United States, uh, mm-hmm. I wasn't actually sure what a collard green is. Am I correct in thinking? I think we've got a product here. Well, sorry, a plant called kale, which is like a really bitter green. Is that similar mm-hmm. to a collard green? It's in the same um, family of brassicas, or I can never say that word correctly, but uh, it's in the same family. Um, but these, but collard greens get much bigger. I mean, once they're grown, they look like elephant ears. That's how large they are. And and, um, and is this a typical food for uh, for all of America, or a particular part of America? No, mostly for African Americans and Southerners. For the primarily, so uh, for one reason or another, I relate to this. Although I never got got a clear answer as to why um, the first African Americans that were brought to America started growing them, but um, on the plantations, collard greens were something that they grew a lot of and ate a lot of, um, and it also became something that. Uh, Southerners, whether they are black or white, would eat as well. And I think it's because uh, collars can withstand the heat of the South very, very well. Right. The, the humidity doesn't bother them. Um, and they get so large and grow so well that even though they're an attractant for pests that like to eat green leaves, you can typically get rid of them and still have plenty of, of collars left. And what is the most typical way of using using them in food? How would you, you what sort you of have recipe? To, you really have to cook them now because they're tough. So typically you're going to um, boil them down in like a broth, 
or uh, or just a brothy uh, or just even water with a lot of seasoning in it. Uh, the way African Americans typically um, uh, cook them is they boil them in a large pot put in um, butter or some people lard and either some sort of pork, whether it's ham, bacon, or something like that to add flavoring. Wow. Okay. Well, that, that's, that's going to be on my list for when I come to visit. <laughs> All right. I'll hook you up some. <laughs> now, you say in your book that you did not fit the stereotypical black kid when you were growing up. That you, yeah, that you just sort of didn't conform to what other kids your age were doing. So tell me a little bit about that. What, what, were, where was your head at? Well, you know, in the clouds probably, but you know, most African American kids, what they did, particularly in the seventies and eighties where I grew up, you know, football, basketball, track. Uh, these are the primary sporting things that they do. Uh, some wrestling, but not tennis, not a lot of soccer at that time, certainly not BMX variety, um, racing, and certainly not hunting. So I was always a little bit on the oddball out. I mean, I didn't like looking at the, the dance shows. Uh, you know, I kind of liked basketball, but I didn't like as much of other things. And so I was always more like the kid in the family that was just a little bit more out there than everybody else. And it wasn't just my family. It was mostly in the community. Um, we grew up in the suburbs, even though I grew, moved around a lot. So, you know, for instance, I went to three different high schools in high school. Uh, so I've worked, lived in communities that were predominantly black, predominantly white, a mixed. And I could always mix with any of them, but I always leaned toward things that weren't the typical uh, things that African-Americans would do. And so with regards to food and culture and, and your family and all of that, when you were growing up in all those different places, because I was very similar in that, um, not that I'm black, I'm very white, but I, was very <laughs> <laughs> but I was very similar in that I moved around a lot and went to lots of different schools as well because of my father's job. And um, we then, you know, I've married and married an expat and we've moved around a lot as a family as well and sort of hauled our kids with us. And what I've found is that it's always food and time at the table that has been the thing that's been able to bring us together, whether it's us as a family or meeting new people. It's been over the sharing of food that we've sort of been able to keep relationships or make new relationships. Did you find that as well, that the food was sort of, and the meal together with your family and with new friends was the thing that was able to sort of be the glue? Well, yes, to the degree, because there was always Christmas, Thanksgiving, Easter. We always had these big dinners at my grandmother's house. Um, it's kind of funny, in, many, uh, in the 90s, there was a movie called Soul Food, where that was basically the whole thing. Everybody came to grandma's house for dinners, and my life was similar. And so there were a lot of things that we ate, and then some of the more traditional things that African-Americans eat, I wouldn't. And, you know, I got ribbing from my cousins and my aunts about that. Uh, I mean, who eats fried chicken with a knife and fork, for instance? I would. Everybody looked at me like I was crazy. Uh, <laughs> You know, and then, you know, when I was doing this project, it was the same thing, because as we got closer and it got a little bit more stringent on what I would allow to be on the table, so to speak, and what I wouldn't, it was always the food that kind of got back, got our, my friends back to, you know, speaking terms, so to speak, when I say, no, I don't want them to bring, you know, 
bread pudding. That's not on the list. Uh, or no, we don't need to bring an appetizer of shrimp cocktail. No, that, <laughs> that's really not. I mean, as we got closer and in, in people, you know, more people got added to the dinner list and they wanted to, you know, contribute and bring something. I really had to do a lot of pushback on what the theme was and let them know, no, I just need you to show up. And Kiara, I was so interested when I was reading that area where you were having to push back with your friends, that macaroni and cheese was even an option at a Thanksgiving dinner. Is that typical for America to have mac and cheese at Thanksgiving dinner? It is, although, again, mostly with African-Americans and people in the South, you will not you will not find a, a Thanksgiving dinner without macaroni and cheese unless it's catered. I mean, it just you go down a block of 100 ha- uh, black homes. They all got macaroni and cheese for Thanksgiving. Um, and I was completely convinced that it wasn't. Well, let me back up. It wasn't part of the original uh, Thanksgiving dinner between the pilgrims and the Indians. But as I relate in the book, I had to make some compromises because I had a lot of people coming and they were like, look, we want some foods that we're used to. And since one of the hosts, this was her very first Thanksgiving with her boyfriend, now fiance, in her mind at that time, she didn't want that event to be messed up because I was trying to experiment and have, you know, a homestead <laughs> Thanksgiving. I think you're so, very brave because Thanksgiving is far more important in the States than Christmas for, for the actual meal, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yes. It's, Christmas is really all about the gifts and the food is an afterthought. Thanksgiving is really all about the food. I actually had the privilege of being in America for Thanksgiving many years ago, and I was cooking for a family there, and I had to cook the Thanksgiving dinner. And that was the most stressful day for me because I just (laughs) felt as an Aussie uh, in America cooking for Americans for their Thanksgiving dinner. I mean, A, it was an honour that they even trusted me with it. But um, it was pretty stressful because I realised how important it was and the thing that I got in trouble for. Thankfully, I didn't get in trouble for anything on the actual Thanksgiving dinner, but I got in enormous trouble the next day where the lady just said to me that obviously I'd not been brought up properly because I didn't know how to make turkey soup with the leftovers. (laughs) And I said, but I come from Perth in Western Australia and it's 42 degrees Celsius on Christmas and the last thing we feel like is turkey soup. It has never crossed anyone's mind in Australia to to follow up on Boxing Day with soup. Soup, exactly. But right, she was horrified, right. yeah. <laughs> Let I, it be I, said, I know yes. how to make turkey soup now. <laughs> right, right. And it's funny because I had that same thing because I was going to make um, soup uh, from one of the vegetables, from the squash. And, you know, the uh, friend that was hosting the event at, at her house was like, no. I mean, she just put her foot down. No, we're not having soup. No one's going to want soup. We're not having soup. Soup is not happening. And so I had to readjust and say, okay, what else can I do with the squash? What did you do with the squash? I ended up baking it with a bacon wrapped around it as an appetizer. Oh, yum. Yeah, that'd be good. Yeah, Yeah, that'd be good. I got much satisfaction from it not being only one of the major hits, but the uh, host, her name is Yara, who pushed back against the squash soup, was just eating them like they were candy. Well, that's fantastic. And did everyone love the meal? 
Was it a yes. huge success? It was a tremendous success. We ended up having like 13, 14 people, like 22 different dishes, actually, when you include the, um, the appetizers. And everybody not only loved what they're used to eating, but many of the things that I brought that they weren't used to eating, like the lobster, uh, the venison, um, and the wild hog that I made a ham out of, which, you know, making discovering that a ham was more than just a part of the the pig was again an education. <laughs> I, you had to brine it from scratch, correct? Yes, I brined it from scratch. Did you put and, when you brined it? Did you put those buckets in a bathtub, or did you just hope to goodness that they didn't leak? Uh, no, I didn't put them in a bathtub. I put them in my laundry room in this big tub that I knew wouldn't leak because I had used it for hunting before. And so I just covered it. Um, I'm just glad that I learned that I needed to brine it, you know, enough time because I didn't really know that that's how you made a ham. I thought a ham was part of the pig and you just threw it in the oven. <laughs> That is what, look, honestly, Kiara, I think that's what most people think. I don't think nowadays, especially for our kids, they go to a supermarket. That's where meat comes from. They're not even going into an old-fashioned proper butcher shop to see the meat hanging and being cut specifically from an animal. So they've literally got no idea. So I don't think anyone's going to hold it against you that you didn't know how a ham was produced. Well, you know, that's the interesting part when you talk about the food and, you know, at the uh, dinner itself, as I was explaining, how I did everything that's where I kind of was able to draw people in that weren't or just visiting and they weren't there during the whole process as to what we were trying to do and it was interesting to them and I talk about this in the book and you just know this as well as anybody who gardens does people don't know where the food comes from anymore it's it's at the grocery store in a plastic container and they don't really think about what is entailed in making it or getting it to them or the quality of the food that they're eating as it gets to them. And walking through the process of making everything by hand or most of the things by hand and then explaining it to them, I could see in many of them a, a much greater appreciation of the, how the food was put together and the meal was put together versus if we went and bought a butterball from the, the grocery store. Well, I think that's the most important aspect of your book is that you've gone back, uh, you know, to trace to trace your journey of growing and hunting and cooking. But but the reality of it is that's a symbol for the fact that that was the original Thanksgiving feast. I mean, they didn't just go to a supermarket and cook up a dinner and everyone, you know, go to grandma's place and sit down and enjoy Thanksgiving. Can you imagine the effort? Well, you know, you, you can imagine the effort that actually went into it for those original yeah. pilgrims. Exactly. Particularly when some of the, the, the things I was trying to grow as they didn't grow enough or failed or what have you, I began to really think about at times, um, what they had to go through because, of course, they couldn't go to another farm, right? I mean, it was just them. <laughs> if the Indians hadn't been there, they, they, you know, America probably would have turned into a completely different type of story. But um, so having to do that, it, it, it did make me think about that. It, and then, of course, the hunting was more frustrating than I imagined it ever would be. Uh, it just the amount of time it took for me to finally get what I wanted uh, was just I think back to it now and it still makes me shake my head in frustration. Yeah, I've only been hunting twice. Once I was incredibly lucky and uh, 
I was taken hunting on a farm here in New Zealand. It was a very bizarre experience for me as well. And we got a deer that morning, which was all too easy, really. I mean, I sort of went out at 4am and we had a deer on the back of a four-wheel motorbike by 5.30am and I was completely in shock, I have to admit, and back to the (laughs) farmhouse by 6.30am. But the next time I went and I took my boys to the farm for a visit uh, just so that they could experience what it was like to be on a farm, you know, they went hunting two days in a row for well, we all went out for hours and hours and hours and of course didn't see or get anything but I think what that taught me as well and I thought that was a really important lesson on the farm was that farmer was very much uh, teaching his kids on the farm you can hunt and I will teach you how to hunt um, but it doesn't matter what you come home with it must be completely eaten you do not hunt for pleasure you know, hunting right. is there because that's going to put food on the plate. And if you don't want to eat it, then you don't hunt it. And I thought that was, you know, fantastic. And I mean, they were basically living off the land and it's not the way I live, nor the way I would probably want to live. <laughs> um, it was a bit confronting for me, but I thought, you know, it's a really valuable lesson again um, for all of us to remember because there's so much waste in the world anyway. It, 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 you're right. I mean, for years growing up, Everyone in my family knew I loved ham. When I got to college, I stopped eating pork. And I didn't eat pork of any sort pretty much until I started hunting. And it was for that very reason, which was, you know, there are a lot of wild hogs in Florida. We're overrun with them. But it it really doesn't matter. I was like, if I'm going to kill it, I need to eat it. So if I'm going to go hog hunting, that means my aversion to not eating pork anymore has to come to an end. Uh, Otherwise, you just can't, in my mind, you just can't go do it. So that's how I started eating pork again. I mean, I don't eat a lot of it, usually only when I go hunting. But whether it's a a deer or a duck or anything else, my whole thing is if I kill it, I have to eat it. Yeah, it's respect for the animal and respect for the process as well. I think that's awesome. Hey, do you have a favorite turkey dressing recipe to share? Uh, well, it depends on how a person likes to, to, to cook it. I mean, I was like a turkey that's really, really moist. Okay. And so there are a lot of ways that you can do that. Some people, you know, just slow roast it. Some people put it in a crock pot. Oddly enough, I found that of all the times that I've cooked turkey in my life, it's come out the juiciest when I've seasoned it, but also slathered it with mayonnaise. Mayonnaise, really? Like store-bought yeah. mayonnaise? Like store-bought mayonnaise, slather it on, then put your seasonings on it, slow cook it like you would any other time, and it, it, it is so juicy and so easy to cut. It doesn't dry out even when the leftovers are moist. You know, I did this in college, and it was phenomenal. <laughs> did I can't you... remember where I got the idea, but... Oh, probably because you were in college and it was easy to get a jar of mayonnaise. <laughs> I love it. I love it. That's fantastic. Hey, Kiara, um, I have, oh no, I remember one thing I was going to say, you know, you hate string beans. I hate string beans as well. I try yes. not to hate them, but I just can't find a positive. And I was reading in your book that you didn't like them and that you thought you were going to have to include them in the menu until you realized that they were probably broad beans. 
that they, yes. yeah, which is yes. awesome because I love broad beans, but I just yeah, this was a real problem for me because I've hated string beans since I was a kid. I would be willing to take spankings from my mom in order not to eat them, and. When I, I knew they eat beans, and so I was thinking, I was really thinking about how can I substitute. I was going to substitute them with yard-long asparagus beans um, because I just knew I couldn't do it. But as I started reading a little bit more, that's what I discovered. God, I had it all wrong. They were eating broad beans, not string beans. Um, and that made life a lot easier. I'm sure you did a little <laughs> dance that day. <laughs> yes. I, yes, I did. Yes, I did. Well, look, I think this is absolutely amazing and awesome. And the listeners are going to be blown away because it's such a different interview and um, it's so engaging to talk to you from the States and all about this Thanksgiving dinner. And I think it doesn't matter whether you're from the US, whether Thanksgiving uh, is part of your culture or not. It's just so inspiring to hear about your journey and making the decisions that you made to actually follow this through and then create a book. And I would encourage anyone listening to jump onto Amazon and download the book because it's it's a really easy, fun, engaging read. I think, you know, it, it tells us so much about you, Kiara, in such a fantastic way. And it really, I had a smile on my face most of the time while I was reading it and I loved your sense of humour through it. And you really engaged us. And well, when I was reading it, I felt like I already knew you and I knew your friends and I could visualise everything that you'd gone through to create this uh, feast at the end and it isn't a recipe book it's a story and it's a great story so hopefully the listeners will all jump on Amazon and download it it's only a few dollars so it's definitely well worth uh, having a read good and you know whether it's this Christmas the idea of growing going out and getting your food even if someone's not in the hunting if they go to a farm um, they get their turkeys or their chickens or anything that's more natural as opposed to what we get in the grocery store it's going to taste better Um, you'll find that your recipes will turn out better and as friends and relatives begin to talk to you about why you decided to do that you begin to engage them and Again, talking about food over food seems to bring people together in a way that, you know, just watch sitting around watching a football game or or television doesn't do. Oh, I totally agree. That is why I'm so passionate about food myself. I mean, I love eating, I love cooking, but I really believe that the best times of the day are when you're engaged with someone over food. And often for me, it's been in environments where I haven't even been able to speak the same language. But even being able to just smile with someone as you appreciate food with them, I think it's just amazing. And we all have to eat, so let's eat well. Right. (laughs) Hey, Kiara, are you still uh, growing vegetables at the community garden? Have you continued to do that? Yes, yes. Right now I've got um, kale, two different types of kale, uh, tomatoes, broccoli, of course. Uh, we tried, The new thing we tried this year was um, loofahs. For anyone that's ever gone into a Bed Bath & Beyond or any type of a bath shop and seen the little things that you use in the, in the shower, those things don't come from the ocean. They're actually a plant that are grown. Um, so I did not know that until last year. Neither did I. I, I thought for sure it was like some sort of sponge from the ocean. So did I. Uh, <laughs> until no, that very moment. Well, it's fine, and then you dry them out, and now you've got nature's way of getting yourself clean. <laughs> 
Wow. Oh, well, that is amazing. And did you take photos in all of this journey? Did you photograph the journey as well or just right? Yes. I do have some photos um, that I took, um, both of the meal, of the garden, um, not so many photos of of the deer and the, and the hogs. So many people are sensitive to that type of yeah. thing. But um, uh, the on the cover of the book, there's a picture of me uh, with a bow and arrow in in the in the bush. <laughs> uh, that's actually when I went out after the ducks. Um, wow, so. that's amazing! That's amazing. Hey, before I let you go, Kiara, can I ask you some either or questions? So you're not yes. allowed to think too quickly about them. Just give us uh, the first one that comes to your mind. Okay. Okay. Olive oil or butter? Olive oil. Okra or corn? Corn. Deep dish apple pie or chocolate cake? Ooh, chocolate cake. <laughs> Had to think about that one. Chicken and dumplings or jambalaya? Jambalaya. Pound cake or peach cobbler? Pound cake. Pecan pie or pumpkin pie? Pumpkin. Meatloaf or mac and cheese? Mac and cheese. Pasta or rice? Rice. Beer or wine? Wine. Ice cream or custard? Ooh. Neither really, but ice cream. (laughs) (laughs) Like I said, I'm bougie. I like sorbet. (laughs) Oh, sorbet. Oh, very good. Organic sorbet with fresh fruit straight from your garden, of course. Exactly. That's what you can do next. You You can grow your fruit and make your own sorbet and share with us how that goes. Ah, that's not a bad idea. (laughs) I've got you thinking now. There you go. (laughs) Hey, Kiara, it was absolutely awesome chatting with you. Um, It seems seems surreal that you're so far away. We won't ever be able to sort of catch up for a wine or a coffee, but thank goodness for Skype and podcasts. It was great to meet you. Well, certainly, and we might be able to because New Zealand has always been on my to travel to list. So, oh look, you, you should have red deer out there that I'm dying to come. Oh, there is a bit of hunting out here in New Zealand. I'm actually not from New Zealand myself. I'm from Australia, so I'm uh, I'm an expat here in New Zealand and totally fallen oh, in love okay. with it. Yeah, I've totally fallen in love with it. It's a very cool country, so you should definitely come and visit, and we will look after you well and show you all the cool foodie spots. There are so many farmers. Markets. There's so much fresh organic produce here, so I think you'd be pretty blown away. Great. Hey, thank you so much. So awesome thank chatting you. with you. Wow, what an awesome interview. I loved chatting with Kiara today and trying to imagine him with his community garden, hunting for his ducks and his wild hogs, trying to convince his friends over there in Florida to sit down to an authentic first feast of America from uh, the Pilgrims and the Indians. This guy is African-American. He has just had a most extraordinary year of putting all of this together and I highly recommend his book, America's First Feast. Anyway, thank you all for listening. Thank you so much for joining us on this extraordinary journey. Uh, The breadth of guests I have had on this podcast has just been so exciting. And every time I talk to someone, I learn so many new things. And it's uh, given me the travel bug again, talking to Kiara. And now I'm ready to jump on a plane and go and investigate and do some crazy things myself. So let's see where that takes me. In the meantime, have a great week. And I look forward to catching up with you next week for another interview. 
Take care. Bye. What's good? Food, Family and Friends podcast, proudly presented by worldpodcasts.com.